Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John, your friendly host, and I am excited to be here today with Mike Stowe, who is the Senior Director of Developer Marketing over at Ring Central. How's it going today? Hey, I'm on the podcast with you. This is fantastic. I'm really excited to have you here too. So Mike, I love starting all of these interviews way back in time with people's origin stories. I love hearing how people got started in tech. What's your origin story? I feel like it's like devolved into like Batman, Superman, except for I, I have no superpowers. I'm definitely not a superhero. So the long story short for me is you know, growing up, I was a basketball player. I was going to be, if you watch the NBA All-Star game, I was going to be in the NBA, minus the fact that I'm not that tall and not that talented. But in seventh grade, I injured my knee. And so I went from having eight, nine hours a day that I would literally go, you'll know, be running, playing basketball, whatnot, to what do I do now? And so I did what all the cool kids were doing. I jumped on a computer. I visited this uh, website called hotyellow98.com where I could build my first free website. And by the way, the coolest thing about that is, I mean, this is back in the 90s, their website would change based on the time of day. So if it was the morning, you see the sunrise, it was night, the sun would be setting. Little did I know at the time, that's not what all the cool kids were doing, but that's what I pursued. So I, I did that as a hobby. And then I decided I wanted to go into healthcare. So I was going to be a life flight paramedic. I was going to jump out of helicopters and save lives. And that was a really good plan up until I realized that I hated heights and I hated needles, which are apparently two prerequisites for that job. So kind of fell back into what am I do next? Again, I, I enjoyed code. I had you know been programming for fun. I decided to try to pursue that. And thankfully, there was an absolutely incredible community that, that helped me along the way. You know, a lot of people like the, you know, the term self-taught developer. I can't use it because I made too many mistakes to be self-taught. You know, incredible people in the community that helped me learn. And without even knowing it, they kind of pushed me the path, not just to engineering, but into, you know, DevRel today. Where was this community? Well, are you talking like an online community or in person? You know, uh, online community. So, I mean, that's the other thing I think is really impactful is I grew up in Northern Minnesota. And again, this was really the early advent where at the time it was Java, it was, you know, a .NET. There wasn't a lot of resources out there for, you know, people to learn programming. And so I would literally try to learn HTML off a web page or learn some JavaScript. And I got involved in PHP. I already hear the groans of the audience. Hey, PHP is a great language. I stand by it. But with that, it was the learning experience. And, you know, just not realizing the impact people have, like Larry Ullman, who I had the chance to eventually meet, an absolutely incredible, incredible guy. He wrote a book, A Quick Start Guide to PHP. For my birthday, I want to learn programming. So my mom took me to a bookstore. Now, growing up, we didn't have a lot. So we went to the bookstore and we looked at a Java book, $40. No way. I looked at a .NET book. And first of all, I couldn't understand what the language was. I don't think it was written in English. It was, I mean, it was so complex, but it, you know, $60. And we saw Larry's book and I think it was $24. And my mom was like, you know what? I will give you the extra $4 you know, on top of your birthday money to get this. And so I was able to get that book. And that was like one of the big expenses we had that year, but that set me in motion to learning. And then it was talking to people online. You know, I remember the first deck I did, I put together a deck for a meetup and shared it online. And you know, one of the more famous people in the PHP you know, space actually responded to that. And the response was, hey, this actually isn't that bad. I'm like, that, that's amazing. You know, but they really helped me because again, I didn't have the money to you know, go to meetups regularly. 
you know, I was in Northern Minnesota, the closest place for meetups and conferences were having Minneapolis for meetups, but then, you know, it was PHP Tech in Chicago and I had the money to, to fly to Chicago, get a hotel, let alone pay for the conference ticket. And, you know, by the way, the people at Tech, incredible people who've done an incredible job with the community as well, but it was just all the people were willing to volunteer their time, help me out. I'd take someone they had never met, someone they you know, never had talked to. I uh, asked really silly questions. My first professional developer job, you know, I was getting interviewed. Actually, I guess technically was my second professional developer job, but I was getting interviewed and they asked me about things like, have you ever worked with OOP? I had never heard the term object-oriented programming. And so I'm thinking, how do I respond to this? And this will probably date me a little bit. I was like, and you know me? I mean, use the rap song. They asked, you know, how do you work with multidimensional arrays? I'm like, space? Like, what's a multidimensional array? I'd never worked with, you know, so even them willing to, you know, kind of take me in. But then the coworkers I had, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to a couple of different people there. And they know who they are. Jim Miller, John Boat, you guys, you know, really helped me out learning SQL, learning PHP, learning code and getting to that next tier. Y'all you know, pick on John. John, you're asking me like, hey, you don't know what a multidimensional array is. How do you get a job here? And Jim going, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to get you there. But between the two of them, they helped me grow. So. By the way, as, as I pick on John, John's a really good friend of mine as well. So they're both very good friends of mine still. So I, please understand, I'm saying this somewhat in jest, but like I said, great people and it, they helped me out. So every step of the way, it was someone in the community who stepped in, whether it was remotely, whether it was when I did have the chance to go to a meetup or, you know, Michael Bork and Peter McIntyre with Northeast PHP allowing me to come speak and actually paying my way so I could speak at the event. I mean, that was a life changer. You need to network with other people. Again, just it's the little things people do that they don't even realize the impact they're having on others' lives. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. Like a lot of the DevRel folks I've talked to, and even engineers as well, have had like so many folks in their career pay it forward. And it almost seems to be sort of like a guiding light for a lot of people in DevRel, right? It's like they had that experience. Someone really helped them out for, for no reason, right? Just to be helpful. And in DevRel, you have the opportunity to do that all the time. And it's not like the most quantifiable part of the job, but it's certainly one of the best like feeling parts of the job. I think it's, so I'm going to say it's the soul of the job, like, yeah. you know, if that makes sense. And, you know, to your point, the community got me into developer marketing, developer relations. I think I'm kind of fast tracking here, but you know, how I got into DevRel, you know, I wanted to pay it forward. Some people had helped me that I wanted to help others. And so I started doing this thing called tweeting. I don't know if we're still allowed to do that or not, but, you know, I was doing tweeting. You know, I started writing blogs. I started speaking at meetups and then eventually, you know, conferences. And pretty soon I was writing code for 12 hours a day because no developer writes code for, you know, nine to five. And I was working on that for 12 hours a day. And I forgot about this thing called sleep. And I remember I was talking to Keith Casey, who was one of the original evangelists uh, at Twilio. And talking to Keith, he goes, you know, there's this job called developer evangelism where you can actually get paid to do this. I'm like, this is amazing. I started pursuing it. Now, Keith forgot to mention one very, very important thing. And that is when I took the job at Constant Contact, my first you know, developer evangelist job, he forgot to mention that instead of working 24 hours a day, you now work 36 hours a day. I'll pick on him for that. But you know, again, it was that, that it was his guidance. And, and you know, for people looking at getting a DevRel, Keith has a great post about his time at Twilio. And it's a honest take. That's the one thing that's really important with this industry is there's a lot of amazing things. I've been you know, in DevRel probably close to 10 years you know, before that professional engineer. And I absolutely love my job, but there's a lot of, you know, things that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't, you know, going to be, wasn't aware of. And the risk of burnout in the industry is extremely high. So I'd recommend reading his blog post. If you're looking at this and you're saying, hey, I'll become a developer evangelist. I want to get DevRel. Take some time to talk to people, be excited about it, but also make sure that you're listening to the good along with the things that maybe aren't so great. Do you think that DevRel is still that way? Like you know, I worked with Keith at Twilio many years ago and that is definitely my memory of it, right? Like it was, there was a lot, you know, like you were on the road a lot and you were working crazy hours because you writing blog posts during the day and going to meetups at night. And part of me thinks it's evolved beyond that, but I, I'm not really sure. Like, what do you think? 
it's funny because I was actually just on a panel with Angel and Angel shared that during the pandemic, he went from doing, you know, 30, 40, 50 events a year to doing 140 events, if I recall correctly, during the pandemic. You know, and I think that's one of the dangers with this role is one, there's a desire to help people. And so there's that desire to always be on. And it was that constant contact. You know, I was working from 6 a.m. to midnight, sometimes longer, taking the train back and forth. And honestly, after a year, like I said, I had nothing left. Like when I you know left constant contact, I literally went to withdrawals for the next two weeks because there's no emails, there's no instant messages on my phone. I think it really depends on the program you're in. If you're in a really good program with people who have made those mistakes to precede you. By the way, that's how I manage It's because I've made those mistakes. It's, hey, look, I know you want to be on the road 24-7, but we're going to make sure you have checkpoints, make sure you have breaks, make sure we do some rotations. If you're in a really good program, then it can be super beneficial. But the problem is still a lot of programs don't, like a lot of companies don't know what developer marketing, developer relations is. And so their expectations may not align with your expectations. So one hand, you run to the politics of it. You know, how do you justify what you do? I mean, I'll pick on people who fall into marketing. So please don't get after me for this. But if you're a developer evangelist in marketing, you're typically spending money. You're spending money on event. You're spending money on travel. And what people see, by the way, is they see the glamorous lifestyle of DevRel. They see you going, hey, you went to Atlanta. You went to DC. You went to New York. You went to Miami. Oh, man, you had to spend a week in Miami. That was terrible. They don't see the fact that, hey, yeah, that was all back-to-back red eyes. And I've gone AC for the rest of the week. And by the way, my vacation in Miami when I was free was going to my hotel and room and passing out. What they see then is that. And then they see the cost. And marketing has an ROI ratio. You know, they're expecting you to bring in four, six, eight dollars for every dollar you spend, and you're not doing that. Well, then what's your value to the company? And I think that causes challenges for evangelists that are not in a you know more mature program where they've been able to define that value. You know, at the same time, like I said, you know, sometimes it's super frustrating because and I'm very fortunate I've worked at some really incredible places. But as when I got into developer evangelism, I assume the role would be going to developers and telling developers about what our company does, mm-hmm. getting their feedback, bringing it back to the company. What I didn't expect was I would have to go to the company and tell the company what the company does. And even at Ring Central, by the way, Ring Central is a fantastic company. I have a fantastic team. I mean, across the board, amazing people. But they're not all developers. You know, I have a lot of people who have never heard of an API or ever work with an API until they got stuck in some session with the developer marketing guy saying, hey, you need to know what these APIs are and be able to talk about customers. So I think it's a really long-winded way of saying that I think in some respects, yes, things have gotten maybe easier because you know people like Casey have paved that road. At the same time, things have gone a little bit harder because the pandemic threw a huge curveball, forced a lot of us to kind of revite how we do things. And all of a sudden, there are all these virtual events. And so again, it was nonstop. Uh, the politics have not gone away. And unfortunately, you know, as we're looking at kind of you know, the macroeconomics out there and companies are tidying up, if a company does not understand the value, the business value that you know, developer relations brings, especially to the bottom line, those are often to be where the cuts are made. So I think it's a long way of saying, you know, it depends on the program. I think it's got a little bit better, but I still think there's a lot of challenges and there's new challenges you know, that we didn't have to deal with back in the day. It's interesting. Like when I think back on it and, you know, Twilio was like my first full-time job, right? So I had no frame of reference for what a healthy work-life balance was. You know, the travel and the hours that I was putting in at least were not necessarily driven by company pressure, right? Like there was no one at Twilio telling me to be on the road all the time. There was no one telling me, you know, like this is the expectation that you work 20 hours a day, but there was also no one telling me not to. You know, I think I loved it. And as you were saying, like a lot of DevRel people love it. And it's sort of like a lot of them hit burnout because they love it too much. But, you know, I think one of the things that's really different about it is, you know, I was doing it out of passion and love and, and a lot of DevRel people were. And that's not to say it was healthy, but it was certainly something I wanted. And a lot of 
teams that have sort of popped up over the years often look at those examples where it's like the DevRel person on the road all the time and they emulate the inputs without looking at the outputs. Like we should be on the road all the time. We should be, you know, omnipresent at all of these events and communities. I think the thing they miss is that like even Twilio, but really any DevRel team eventually had to kind of like take a step back and be like, okay, like we're putting a crap ton of time into these inputs for DevRel, you know, how much time we are spending, how we're engaging the community, but we also need to be able to justify the outputs of our work. And that often got lost in the shuffle, right? Like there was a period of time where I would talk to people and be like, we want to do what like Twilio is doing. We want to do what SendGrid is doing. But they didn't necessarily think critically about it. And I know that like a lot of the work that you've done is on that back end, right? Like, how do you get the company to think critically about DevRel? How do you make sure that DevRel can justify its existence? I mean, like, how do you justify your existence? I wish I could say that, again, I'm just super brilliant and I came up with this idea on my own. Uh, the reality is it came from a lot of hard lessons learned. Again, I want to be really, really careful to say there, you know, I can't say enough good things about Constant Contact. It was a great company. But I came in as a engineer trying to get into DevRel. I came in thinking I was going to go into an established program to find out that when I was the only was doing marketing to developers, you know, all of a sudden ran into challenges between brand versus the company brand, you know, stereotypes of how people perceive developers. And I think that's gotten a lot better versus you know, how developers actually interact. And so there are a lot of mis- you know, missteps along the way. And so again, trial by fire, learning the hard way here. What it taught me was that a lot of my assumptions coming in from the developer space were not accurate. Companies don't, even though they've invested into building out a platform, the company may not see the full value of the platform or the opportunity. And I'm going to pick on Ring Central. If you look at Ring Central, you know, I think we have, and I mean this all due respect to, to everyone out there because we have great companies, you know, Twilio, Vonge, all great companies. So please don't, again, mistake what I'm saying here. But I think we have one of the most incredible and unique platforms out there because we can combine your traditional office phone with those APIs. You know, when I first was reached out to by Ring Central, I'll be honest, they're, they're like, hey, do you want to join Ring Central? I'm like, no. Twilio, there's Vonage, there's Plyable, you've got all these great APIs out there already. What are you guys bringing to the table and that, you know, Rob's not doing or Phil's not doing, uh, like using the, you know, the groundwork that, you know, Keith laid, Twilio? And thankfully, I had a very persistent recruiter and she said, keep looking, keep looking. And finally, she said, look, they made some updates to their webpage, take another look. And if you're still not interested, then I'll stop calling you. And I'm like, hey, great. You know, times have changed. You know, back then I was like, okay, if the recruiter stops calling, that's a great thing because my inbox will, won't be full the next day. And so I took another look and that's when I realized, wow, there's all this potential. Meeting with the team at Ring Central, you know, there are people who saw the potential. There are a lot of people who didn't you know, realize what they were sitting on. And what I realized at that point, and this again goes back to lessons learned from constant contact, was that you have to have a strong foundation to build a house. And what I knew was that if I didn't empower the company to help tell the story, it would be me going out there telling a story that wasn't going to be echoed, that wasn't going to be resonated, and was going to oftentimes be conflicted. If I didn't empower you know, our sales team, our CSMs, solutions engineers to talk about the platform, then they would bury the lead. You know, They'd talk about other capabilities. It also meant that we had to find a way to build a program in a scalable manner. You know, because going in and starting a program is, I think, very different than going to establish program. When you go into start a program, you're it. You're the strategy guy. You're the execution guy. You're the guy managing the budget. You're the guy on the road doing the talks. And the hard lessons I had early on was that people 
again, because they don't necessarily understand the audience, because that's not their target audience, especially if you're not a developer first company, they don't understand what's needed to be successful. And so they want to throw marketing dollars at it and say, go beyond the road, go talk about this. But they actually don't know if they have a you know, prog market fit or solution that developers can use. And, you know, sorry, Ring Central, you know, again, a terrible, terrible story, but I'm going to tell it. You know, the first thing I did was do a competitive analysis. If I'm using, you know, Twilio's API, how long does it take me to build a two-way SMS bot? If I'm using Vonge's API, how long does it take me? And I won't name names here. One took me 15 minutes, one took me 20 minutes. Both had minor issues, but one of those was actually the Tumult. Tumult's been documented since then. And so you know, fixed that problem. So I'm sure it's a much faster experience. I used Ring Central. It took me 40 hours. That's a problem. And if I go out telling people, go use the Ring Central SMS API, and granted, this was you know five years ago, but if I go out and tell people to use the Ring Central SMS API, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend marketing money to create a bad experience and push them to Twilio, push them to Vonage. So the first step we looked at was why does it take 40 hours? How do we improve this experience? You know, And for me, I usually call it the developer hierarchy of needs, which is looking at what does a developer need to be successful with the platform? And the first thing it starts with, I think, is that you know, kind of the topic we're talking about, developer education, basic onboarding. Do you have the API documentation or the reference and the tools for me to be able to complete an API call and use your API? Because no matter what else you do, if you don't have the most basic thing, I can't use your API, you're wasting your money. You know, then it goes into community because I think community is actually the second most important component. Then it gets into more of expand enablement options. You know, it gets into you know events, but it all starts with do we have the basics in place? The second piece that I use is developer marketing funnel or the developer journey, which also looks at are developers aware of the platform? Are they interested in the platform? Are they considering using the platform? Have they adopted it? That doesn't mean that they bought it, but are they actually using it? Maybe they're using a free account, become an advocate for the platform. And the reason I use that funnel is to say, where are the issues we have? If we have an issue with awareness, let's not be worried about advocacy just yet. Let's worry about awareness. Get people into the funnel, and then we'll see what the next stage of the funnel is not working, and we fix that as we go. So if people are super interested, they're considering, but they're not adopting, what's the cause of that? And if you think of it as kind of a a well-oiled machine, that's the approach that you know, I've taken. The last one, I'm going to give credit to Rob, a specter on this one is a three core model, you know, evangelism, community, education. We put a lot of weight on evangelism. And I think evangelism is an absolutely key component. But at the same time, if you look at some of the most successful programs out there, and I always ask people, what's the most successful program? You're like, oh, Twilio or Slack or, you know, uh, Ring Central. But I think the most successful programs out there are programs like GitHub and Stack Overflow where it's all based on community and all based on education. Uh, DigitalOcean, if you search for something on Linux, everything you know shows up DigitalOcean. And so people underestimate the power of education, not just telling them about your company, but telling them about how to become a subject matter expert or help them grow their careers and the power of community as part of that three-core model. Once we yeah. do that, and, I, and this is a really long answer, so I apologize. The next thing we look at then is how do we validate the work we're doing? Now, every new program, I think you start with something I call vanity metrics. I call them vanity metrics because they actually don't mean anything. They're things like how many people, how many developers do you have in your community? How many API calls are being made? How many monthly active apps or ISV apps do you have? And these are really exciting numbers. These are your PR numbers. You know, these are numbers that you tout in a press release, you share at the company, you share at earnings, but they actually don't mean anything because you can have a thousand active users and all they're doing is costing your company money and not contributing to the company bottom line. What's the value that it's bringing to the business? Now, vanity metrics are good to start your program with because you need a benchmark. Like, I don't think unless you're selling your APIs from day one, you don't go in day one with a revenue number. But as the program then matures, you need to be working towards how are we driving towards that bottom line? How are we supporting the company? And this is something that's hard for developer evangelists, I think. You know, as a developer evangelist, you really have two bosses. 
You have the developers in the community because you want to do what's best for them, but you have the company you work for. And sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we go, I work for the developers, but then we work for the company too. And so we have to find that balance of making sure that we're doing what's right for developers and best for our community. But we're also helping the company move forward and we're not just a cost center. And I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier in terms of, hey, we do a whole bunch of stuff, but what's driving in terms of, of value? And by the way, I will just, I can't iterate that enough. When I worked, when I was pursuing the life flight paramedic, one of the things that they told us was you're no good to anyone else if you get injured. You know, for developer evangelists, people looking at it, you're no good if you burn yourself out. There have been too many people in this industry who have jumped in, who have run. And I like to say, you know, developer evangelists are like racehorses. They like to run and they'll keep running and running, but they will run themselves, you know, out. So make sure you understand that you need to take time for yourself. You need to take time to recover. You need to take time to set aside. And I got to the extreme, by the way, when, when I moved to California, I didn't have internet in my house. I had a little, my cellular Wi-Fi. So if I need internet for emergency, I had it, but I was not going to be online when I got home. And that was a lesson I learned after, you know, kind of being on for 24 seven. But going back to your original questions, I want a huge tangent there. It's all about understanding where you are in the community, where you are in the company, how the community perceives you. Constant Contact, MailChimp was the cool company. You know, Constant Contact was kind of the archaic, hey, who are you guys? MuleSoft, we had taken an open source solution and, and created an enterprise solution. And we had ticked off a lot of developers in the process. At the same time, we were pushing something called an ESB or an enterprise service bus. And everyone was looking at SOA and going, no, we don't want enterprise service buses. We want something new. And so it's like, how do you position the way that actually resonates? Because it's really powerful. And by the way, the irony is that if you look at the tools coming out, Zapier, Make, Tibco, MuleSoft, Informatica, they're all really SOA-based architectural tools or ESBs. I'll get myself in trouble with the microservices people here. You know, uh, Ring Central. Ring Central's like, who are you guys? You are we're either archaic, we're the doorbell company, or my favorite was a person who goes, Hey, you guys are a communications company? I'm like, yeah. He goes, Well, good luck. And I'm gonna pick on Twilio because that's what he said. He goes, You're going against Twilio because you guys don't have a chance. I'm like, well, with all due respect, and we, we are a public company. We've been around for you know, you know, 20 years. But again, it's that perception. And so you have to really fight that perception both externally, build the perception internally, build the foundation so that you have the documentation, you have the enablement, and then everything you do from that needs to scale from that forward. I think the other mindset from going in and being, I'm a developer evangelist, a mature company or mature program, excuse me, to I'm building a program is you have to be in that scale mindset because you're only one person and you will be expected to do everything uh, just because the company doesn't honestly know what to expect in that case. So there's a lot to unpack there. Let me start with like when you joined Ring Central. So you mentioned that you started from almost like first principles, right? Like how do we improve the developer experience before we go out and market it really heavily? But you were hired into developer marketing, right? Like you report into marketing. You know, I've talked to a lot of people at this point about like the fact that developer advocacy, marketing, whatever you want to call it, like is so multifaceted that even if you report into one division, you are inevitably impacting many different parts of the organization. Like how did you make that case for spending all your time on like docs and, you know, whatever, like getting started flows to a marketing leader? Like how do you actually like, justify that work from the perspective of, you know, ultimately you have to impact the bottom line. So again, I wish I could say everything is a great process. There's never any bumps in the road was again, the first was the test. And thankfully my counterpart on the product, John Wong at the time, we knew each other previously. He knew my work in the API space. And so he knew that, you know, I wasn't someone who's going to come in and not necessarily know how to use an API. And so when I gave that information, I think there was initially a little bit of a, a woe moment of like, are you sure? Like, was it this? What, what caused this? And so I was looking at the myriad of issues. The second was, and again, John absolutely ran with that. I can't give enough credit. The second then was realizing that our documentation needs to be improved. If we're going to be a world-class solution, we have to 
be a world-class solution. I mean, so we hired an individual, individual by the name of Bern Reese to come in and work on the documentation. How I made that case was actually really simple. I brought in people and did user testing. So we actually did virtual user testing, asked people to use our APIs. And some of the skeptics are going, hey, we got this great platform We're watching in real time, people failing at the most basic steps. And so I think that opened up a lot of eyes. And, and again, I'll be very clear. There's a lot of goodness with the platform when I joined. Like I'm not walking in saying, hey, I flipped this thing on its head over. That's not the case. That'll never be the case for anyone. But but walking in, it's like there's so much goodness, but there were just some things that need polished or need to be fixed for us to get across the finish line. And that's been our focus ever since day one is creating a world-class product and making sure we're putting developers first. You know, behind the scenes, there's always going to be things that, that happen. Anybody who's in IT or engineering knows there's always things that go on. Our goal is to mitigate that, to get ahead of it, to bring in you know, different solutions to make sure that we're monitoring, that we know the issue is doing regular user testing. And so that's how we remedied that part was, again, empirical evidence. It wasn't just me saying it. We got other developers doing it. And we did hackathons and you encouraged you know, our product team to join the hackathon so they could see what was happening. The second aspect of it was saying expectations. And this is hard. Because, you know, a lot of times when you're hired into this field, the person who hires you has an expectation for what your job is. But if they're not in DevRel or they haven't done DevRel or Dev Marketing, they actually don't know what your job is. So day one, I, you know, I joined Ring Central and my boss, who's absolutely fantastic, good friend of mine, you report to product marketing. We create data sheets, case studies, videos. I need you to create a data sheet for each one of our APIs. I'm like, we have over at the time 200 APIs. I'm not creating 200 data. That's what documentation is for. And that required me to bring some information to my manager and say, hey, this is what I think we should do. This is the strategy. This is the plan. And by the way, when you have a comprehensive plan, you put that strategy and you have metrics that say, you know, these are you know, success metrics. And if we don't hit these metrics, like one of the things I have is I have a kill line, which is if we hit this line, we have to either adjust our tactics or kill this program and change what we're doing. Like we're not hitting the success that we expect. That goes a long way because they, they see that you're looking at holistically. They see that you're looking at the metrics and how you can impact the program, but they also see that you're willing to be wrong and you're willing to adjust. And because you're willing to be humble about it, you get more trust from them typically. And it takes trust on your manager's end. Not every manager is going to go, hey, yeah, that, you know, I was in proc marketing for, you know, 20 years and you're telling me that everything we did for proc marketing is, is wrong for developers. I go for it. A lot of people are going to have a hard time adjusting that. And so as we baby steps and there's going to be some compromise. You know, so it's like, hey, let's do a data sheet for you know this and, and this. And by the way, one thing I'll share is if you're going into marketing, a lot of marketers don't understand developers. But one of the best lessons I had when I was at Constant Contact, I came as a developer, is learning why marketing does the things that marketing does. And I'm biased because I'm a developer and marketer, but it's like, man, if we took what marketing does and the best of marketing, we took the best of engineering and put them together. Like to me, that's like a superpower in itself. There are reasons marketing does things the way they do. You can learn a lot from these individuals. You can learn a lot about ROI and you can learn about a lot about impacting the business. So don't operate a silo and be willing to concede and try things you know, that they want to do as well, as long as it's not going to hurt you in the community. Because sometimes you get things, you know, I had a marketer, I'm not going to name names, but they're like, you're doing a conference with 25% CEOs. Here's a bingo card where you should find the trolling CEO. I don't think that's going to resonate well. So that's kind of how, you know, I convinced them was, you know, here's what the empirical evidence, here's the plan, here's the metrics we're going to hit. And if we don't hit it, then we're going to change. And then it was a lot of meetings, a lot of time, a game buy-in. You know, that first month, my entire time was primarily spent internally versus externally. That's their mistake. You know, learn from constant contact. You happy focus internally. Today, I spend probably, and granted it's increased a little bit, but I probably spend about 70% of my efforts on internal marketing versus external marketing. So making sure the company is brought to speed, knows what you're doing, and then making sure you're telling your story. The greatest skill of a marketer, and I think this is a core principle of being a developer evangelist. I think to be a developer evangelist, you have to have 
love or passion of helping others. And you know, I got myself in trouble saying that I'm, I'm going to double down on it. I think if you go in the industry and your goal is not to help others with everything that gets thrown at you, you're going to burn out. At the same time, I think you'd be a great storyteller and marketers, you know, really good marketers are great storytellers. You have to tell the story internally. You have to make sure everyone's aware of your story. And it's going to start small. I started telling the story to my manager and to the product team and to anybody that would listen. Like, you know, I swear I got a soapbox to tell a story. You know, a few months ago, I had the privilege of telling the story to our board of directors. You know, so as you tell that story and it resonates, people are going to get excited. They're going to be able to tell the story, but they also want you to tell the story to more people. I absolutely love that. You made kind of an offhand comment about using hackathons as like product testing and feedback. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I know it's a little self-serving, but like, I'm curious about it because we've done it. I've seen other people do it. You know, I think it's an interesting use case for that format of event. A really interesting presentation. You might have heard of this one that I actually recommend to everyone I speak to about hackathons. And the presentation is called Don't Throw That Hackathon. Very familiar. <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought you might be familiar with that one. But in that, you know, obviously it talks about MLH and, and the great work you guys are doing. But the point is made that there's a purpose for hackathons and there's a reason not to do hackathons. And I will tell you right now that almost every company I talk to, they want to do a hackathon for the wrong reasons. And so that's why I love that presentation. I'm so grateful that you and Mike threw that out there. You know, people say, we're going to throw a hackathon and get a production quality you know, release that we can add to our exchange in 24, 48, 72 hours. It's not going to happen. I mean, first of all, a lot of these hackathons, you know, you're getting people who are you know, entry level, especially if you're going to a, a college hackathon, which is a great experience, by the way. I'll get into the college aspect in a little bit, but you know, college hackathons should not be overlooked by any means. They, I mean, they're, they're absolutely crucial to success. Number two, half of us are like hyped up on caffeine at the time where we're not even in our right mind anymore. We're just like literally programming. And the only way we're still awake is because we've had four rock stars or uh, Red Bulls or whatever it is. On top of that, you get prizes for using other people's uh, APIs. So if there's multiple vendors, that means I tried to cram in 14 different companies' APIs to make this product so I had the best chance of winning. You're not going to get something that's production quality. Just like you wouldn't expect your engineering team, I hope, to crank out a production quality app in you know 48 hours. So the second is, you know, companies will do it to drive sales. I have yet to see that be successful. John, I don't know if you, have you seen that be successful? Never. So people are coming to learn about your technology to try it, but you also understand who your buyer is. At Ring Central, my buyer is not the developer. My developer is an end user. So they're still a customer and they're my customer, but they're not writing the check. When I was at MuleSoft, our solution started $80,000 for a core. I wish I had met developers who were willing to write me an $8,000 check because it made my job a lot easier because they love the software. Again, there were decision makers that had to buy that software. So you're not going to drive sales. People will try out your platform. What they will become is if they like your platform, advocates, and they can refer you to other individuals and you will see an indirect revenue from these hackathons, but you're not going to see direct revenue from them. Instead, why I like hackathons and why I recommend hackathons, brand awareness. You know, again, Ring Central, we're the world's largest cloud communications platform for you know unified communications. That being said, we were not well known in the developer space. I want to get in front of developers. I want them to go, hey, you guys aren't the doorbell company. You're this awesome communications company. Number two is product feedback. Invaluable. We had a hackathon with a sponsorship. It was a small hackathon and it was actually run by friends of mine. So I felt very comfortable doing this. We knew we had some issues that had to be resolved. I took a member of our product team and went to this hackathon. And it was a disaster, just candidly, it was a disaster. You know, different things that we were saying need to get fixed weren't working. And, you know, the product team saw that firsthand. Uh, we were on, you know, we were on the phone with the engineers, phone of the, you know, and so uh, as bad of an experience as it was, it was a great experience because we set the expectation. That's the other thing, by the way, is you talk about the foundation going out to the community. You have to know where you are as a program. Year one at Ring Central, we came out and said, look, we are working on getting to be world-class. 
you're not going to use this and go, hey, this is absolutely the best platform we've ever used year one. We want you to be that stakeholder that drives us, keeps us honest, and helps us improve. And as I say that, again, I truly believe we have a world-class platform. RingCentral has gone from being one of the least known platforms for communications in the developer space to one of the most award-winning in the last five years. You know, So there's been huge traction there, but that's because we went to developers honestly and said, we have some issues we need to work through. We need your help to get there. In the hackathon, they gave us that feedback. And you're going to have developers that are absolutely awesome. And they're like, hey, Mike, did you know this isn't working? This is kind of frustrating. You know, Or this could be done better. Hey, here's a way you could do this. So they're giving us the ideas. And you're developers who are like, man, this is garbage. <laughs> but that's important feedback because the reality is that's the experience that your developers are going to have externally if you push it and if you don't get those things fixed. So feedback on documentation, this documentation didn't make sense. Feedback on proc onboarding. And all this feedback, by the way, led us to the five-minute quick start guide. You know, we've been a finalist for best documentation several years now. You led to those investments because of that. So the product information or the feedback that you get is absolutely invaluable. And if you have a great experience and you're able to get that product feedback, you're getting brand awareness, you're creating a positive perception and you're getting that feedback, I think those are huge wins and reasons I would absolutely, absolutely do a hackathon. Another reason I do a hackathon, recruiting, hiring. If I'm going to get an MLH, uh, we'll talk about the college hackathons here. First of all, college students are, but call, I'm going to say that they haven't been marred by the industry yet. You know, they're, they're enthusiastic. I'll be honest. You tell me to stay up code for 72 hours. I'm like, look, I got five hours of sleep this week. Like, I, ain't going to happen. College students are like, yeah, let, like, let's grab pizza. Let's grab, you know, Mountain Dew. Let's grab the Red Bull. Let, let's make it happen. They're also on the cutting edge of technology and social trends. So we often overlook them because again, they're not writing the check, but they're the ones who are talking about what's coming. And I hate to say this, a lot of times they're actually ahead of technology versus like enterprises where they're still doing with DB2 database. And then last but not least, college students are looking for internships, they're looking for jobs. So that's why I would do a hackathon is for those three reasons. But again, I absolutely would not do a hackathon for a driving revenue in terms of, hey, we're going to make sales or getting production ready apps. And I cannot recommend, again, it's called Don't Throw That Hackathon. I believe it's by Mike Swift with, with MLH. You, literally, if you pause this podcast right now, go watch that. It's worth the watch. Yeah, it's a fantastic talk. And I think everything he said in it, and that post was written like 10 years ago, still rings true. But I completely agree with you. I think they're, it's a really fantastic channel, but not for the reasons that people often think. Well, one interesting stat I'll just share before we move on is talking about like the long tail value of these events. Like MLH has been around for 10 years now. And, you know, we obviously care a lot about like what developers are doing in their careers and what they're learning. One of the stats we found is that almost 40% of our alumni have introduced a technology into production at their job that they first used at a hackathon. That's hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, that's a long tail. Like it might've taken them three to five years to get to that point. But like, when you think about like developer awareness as a function, like it matters that people know who you are, have positive experiences with your platform and have your tool in their tool belt so that when the time is right, they do introduce it. And like, there's a million anecdotal stories to that effect. Like I remember a ton of them from when I was at Twilio, but like it, it's a real thing. And I think it's a real use case for hackathons, but also any other community events, right? Like going and speaking at a conference may not get people to buy your product next day, but now they know who you are. So I like to use the phrase that, you know, you can go for leads or you can go for relationships. Leads are people that you want to do something. You know, it's, hey, I want you to buy this product. They buy it. And that's your relationship. That's that's it. Like done. Relationships are people who want to do things for you because they know that you want to do things for them. And to your point, when you build this program, everything you do has to be long tail. 
you know, the investments we made in our community in year one, we did not see a huge benefit from that. Like we talk about you know, vanity metrics and kind of, you know, the snowball rolling downhill. Uh, blessed to have won the best community award from Dev Portal this year. That's five years of work in the making. That's numerous events. That's numerous engagements. That's bringing people in. As you do it, again, I would focus on the relationship aspect and, and understand that to your point, it's going to be a long tail. Now, that being said, you're going to get some really cool wins. I shouldn't tell a startup I'm going to because why not? When I was at MuleSoft, you know, I had a new manager come in and my manager did not, again, traditional marketing background, did not understand the value of developer relations, developer marketing. What they saw was me going to these events, spending a lot of money as a sponsor and getting you know, that much in return. And so they basically said, this is your last event. Like after this, we're going to shift focus and you know, this has become a marketing program. And so I went and, and gave the talk, uh, knowing it was my last talk. You know, keep, I was actually basically prepared to pack my box after that. I was like, this is going to end well, but gave the talk, got back to the office. And as soon as I got back to my desk, I had a call. And it's from a you know guy named Charles, who's one of our sales reps. He goes, Mike, did you just do a talk? I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah, we just got two uh, really strong opportunities from that talk. You know, so you will get, and, th- and thankfully, like I said, that saved my job and my boss like, oh yeah, go do more talk. But that's not going to be the expectation. Like I said, it's about building that relationship, building that opportunity to be a part of the community. That's the other thing I'll say, and we're getting a little bit off of the education topic here, but at Ring Central, and this has been the case for every program I built, it's not our community. We are privileged to be part of the community of people who love Ring Central. And we are, you know, privileged to engage with them, but we are a part of the community. We don't run the community. We don't manage the community. We try to obviously engage the community, set an example, be there, support the community. But to understand that they run the community. The developers are the community, not you. They set the tone in terms of how they respond. And their tone, by the way, will be set based on how you treat them. You know, the other thing I, I like to say is, you know, developers are the most loyal and most volatile target audience in the world. They will absolutely, you know, stand by your brand if you treat them right, if you create good relationships, if you value them. It's the golden rule. Everything you do needs to be symbiotic. It needs to be for their benefit. Right? You know, the two bosses, the company and the developer. At the same time, if you don't value them, if you try to take advantage of them, if you're dishonest with them, I promise you they will be at your competitors so fast that you won't even have a chance to say what happened. You know, several years ago, there's a study that said the two most important values in developer relations are empathy and integrity. You know, I can't emphasize that enough. That's this terrible phrasing. I can't emphasize empathy enough. I think that's a really great summary to our entire conversation here. I know we only have a couple of minutes left. The question I always like to kind of end on is sort of like an existential question for people. Like when you think back about all the work you've done and even your own educational journey, like what would you change about how developers learn, how developers are educated? There's been some really interesting developments in the space. You know, one of the cooler tools I've seen was Catacoda, which was, you know, eventually rolled into, I believe it was O'Reilly, where you could go in and use interactive experiences. That was really awesome. And so I'd love to see more hands-on tools, more guides, more solutions there. But I'm going to be actually really selfish. The thing that I would change, and this is for my own benefit, is the awareness and emphasis on resources for learning. You know, again, growing up, buying that PHP book, and by the way, I can't thank Larry enough because that skyrocketed my career. I mean, that, without that, I wouldn't have a career. That was a big investment for my family. And at the time it was, no, you need to be taking professional courses. You need to be buying expensive books. You need to be, you know, subscribing to, you know, online courses or going to these expensive conferences. You know, I think the advent of community meetups, community conferences has been invaluable. And I think one fear I have is that with the pandemic, the people who are kind of leading that realize, wow, I actually have time to spend with my family or sleep or, you know, they're not doing those now. We're not seeing as many in-person events. We're not seeing those opportunities. We're not seeing the mentorship groups that we used to see of people saying, hey, if you have questions, I will mentor you. I'll help you grow. I'd love to see that come back. 
you know, to your point, not we can't do everything that you know Twilio did to, to initially, where they had all these things. You know, we can't do everything that you know Amazon did when they launched into developer relations. But there are a lot of good things that were being done that maybe didn't have a direct revenue value that we could tie to it, but had an intangible value. Again, speaking at the meetups, sharing the knowledge, speaking on topics that you know it wasn't even on Twilio's API or Ring Central's API. I was talking about here's how you work with APIs, or here's how you work with this technology, office hours, you know, things like that. That's what I'd love to see more of and, and more resources because I know how good my code is in production. I like to tell people there's a reason I'm in marketing. We are again getting old here. We're responsible for helping the new generation's best practices develop the discipline to have you know good behaviors with their code. That means commenting your code. I know that people hate doing that still, but making sure that's there. You know, using unit tests, etc. I might be really old. That might be just a de facto thing now. You know, but making sure that we're doing that. That's what I'd love to see from an education standpoint: more free resources, more interactive resources, and more hands-on kind of mentoring. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I I truly enjoyed our conversation. And I honestly feel like we could go on for many hours here digging into all the little nuances of developer communities. But I really appreciate your time. You know, folks, I hope you enjoyed listening. We'll include some links to Mike and his work at Ring Central in in the notes. And if you want to hear more, definitely, you know, like the podcast and subscribe and look out for more episodes soon. But thank you again and happy hacking. (laughs) The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking!